This is Zach Driscoll, and I'd like to welcome you to the Real Men Podcast. To find more Bible teaching and content like this, visit markdriscoll.org. And don't forget to set aside a good chunk of time, because my dad has a habit of preaching lengthy sermons. All right, thank you for joining us, for uh, my brothers that are here at the Trinity Church in Scottsdale, and thank you to everyone who's joining us online. Uh, If you're new, what we tend to do on Wednesday nights, we get men together for Real Men. We've been shut down for a few months. And uh, this is just a little lecture uh, to get us sort of back in the groove. And I'm going to pray and talk about some very uh, emotionally charged current events and try and provide some biblical hope and perspective. Uh, And so, uh, Father God, in a world that's filled with bad news, I pray that I'd be able to share some good news. In a a world where everybody's trying to point the finger at who's to blame, we want to find the one who can fix the problem. And uh, Lord God, when all is said and done, uh, please just send the Spirit to help me to as much as I can with limited capacity and finite understanding, be of help and love and service in Jesus' good name. Amen. Um, this will be more of a lecture. Uh, all the notes uh, are online. I wrote a very long blog post this week, and this will be sort of a summary and an explanation of some of that. And uh, what I want to talk about is something that I, I typically don't do on a Sunday. Sunday, go through books of the Bible, but we're in kind of odd times, and so I thought it would be appropriate to address what's really become now a global issue, and I'm sure you all know, and I've seen the video of uh, the death of George Floyd. Um, In my research, I didn't know him, of course. Seems like he had some problems in his life, and maybe a decade or so ago, met Jesus, got saved, became a Christian. His story is like all of us, like these are things that weren't going well, and I met Jesus, and changes started to happen. And he he professed to be a Bible-believing, Jesus-loving Christian. He helped uh, plant a church that was reaching young men in the inner city. Uh, he was encouraging them to put down guns and violence and to pick up the Bible. Literally, his kind of thing was put down your gun and pick up your Bible. That was the basic basic message that he often shared. Um, he helped baptize a lot of guys who were new Christians, and, uh, and, and he served the Lord faithfully. And what happened to him, we've all seen. Um, it's murder, it's criminal, um, and there's this massive just sort of outpouring of raw emotion. All of it is uh, understandable. Um, and, and one thing I want to say is that this outpouring of emotion is really interesting to me because as a Christian, it makes sense. But for those of the, for people who don't understand that there is a lawgiver and a high authority over all times, places, and cultures, the question I want to ask is, what are you appealing to or who are you appealing to? As a Christian, we could go, well, God made people and he loves them. They're made in his image and likeness. And he says that murder is wrong. So I have a right to be upset. Absolutely consistent. For those who would say, there is no lawgiver. There is no law. There are no universal standards over all people's times, places, and cultures. There's no universal morality. Why are you upset? If everything is relative and perspective and your truth is not my truth and their culture has their truth and this culture has their truth, then it really robs us of the dignity of human beings to have moral outrage. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't have moral outrage. I'm just saying, if, if you are appealing to a universal law and you don't believe in universal laws, what are you appealing to? As Christians, we could say, no, there is a God over every time, nation, place, culture. It doesn't matter your age. It doesn't matter your race. It doesn't matter your income. It doesn't matter your ethnicity. It doesn't matter your culture. It doesn't matter your history. God said, life is sacred and to take it is murder. That's what God said. So wherever that happens, we have a right to be outraged. The other thing that's starting to happen is there are those who are lawfully, peacefully protesting, which is American. That's just American. That's the way to do it. And just a 
a number of people, smaller number of people, are using that opportunity to commit crimes. Business owners that have been closed for months and are just trying to open, and now they're like, really? My business is destroyed. And so what we're seeing is some people are opposing the breaking of one commandment by breaking another. And so they're, they're opposing murder with stealing. And, and that's not the answer. Uh, but this is what happens when people get emotionally charged, but they're not biblically informed. And so what I want to really um, delve into and talk about quite deeply is issues of equality, law, and race. And I know in doing so, I am jumping right into the bee's nest. I'm sure there'll be a lot of opinions about this. But for those who are appealing to equality, which is almost this transcendent American value, my question would be, on what basis is there any sense of equality to appeal to? And I'll give you four different options. And here's the reason. When, when you see something that you just know that you know that you know is wrong, and the conscience that God made you with calls you to cry out to some sort of universal law and standard, like this is just wrong, it's an indication that you're made in the image and likeness of God and that the conscience God has given you, Romans 2 says, is this internal witness that we know that we know that we know when something is wrong and, and ultimately we're crying out for justice. And then what we do is we appeal to some sense of authority and some sense of equality. But apart from Christianity, there is no real basis for any sense of equality or justice under law. This will be my argument tonight, and it's fairly technical. My bad point is this, just because you're upset, if you don't understand how to work toward a solution and a resolution, you may make the problem worse and not better. Right? And that's what can happen with raw emotion that's not guided toward biblical wisdom. So let me give you four different options on first the issue of equality, and then we'll deal with justice, and then we'll deal with race. Option number one is karma. Many of the Eastern religions, Hinduism being a prominent example, they believe in reincarnation. And this is that there is almost a ledger and your life is lived and the good things you do go in the good column, the bad things you do go in the bad column, and then you need to die and then have rebirth. And so it's this karmic cycle where then you come back to suffer and to pay off the debt column in the ledger of bad deeds. Uh, this is the whole concept of reincarnation. And many religions, many if not most Eastern religions, their view is of karma. The practical result of this, and I've seen this, I've been, I've been to India. I spent some time traveling around India. And what you see is they don't have the Red Cross. They don't have the Salvation Army. They don't have mercy ministry. There's no such thing as social justice. It's not like that because the whole culture is largely dominated by reincarnation thinking. And so if you did bad things in your past life, you're now suffering in your present life to pay off the debt of your past life. Therefore, it would actually be, hear me in this, immoral to help you because I would be robbing you of paying off the debt you've accrued. So in that culture, you get a caste system. Certain people are higher up than others. And you don't get mercy because mercy would ruin your karma. If you're trying to pay off your debt and I help you, all I'm gonna do then is accrue your debt. Now you gotta die again, reincarnate again, and now you've got more to pay off because you didn't pay it off the first time. So the whole worldview, this ideology that consequences have ideas that comes with karma is literally, we're not equal and some people are suffering because they did bad things and we can't help them, otherwise we'll make it worse. So it becomes virtuous to let people suffer without intervening and serving. The second option is Islam. Islam is 
perhaps the fastest growing religion in the world. And uh, Islam does not have any concept of equality. If you live under Sharia law and you are not a Muslim, you do not have equal rights, equal value or dignity. Um, for example, under um, strict Islamic law and this sense of Islam, men and women do not have the same legal rights under the law. They just do not. I mean, in some strict Muslim nations, women are just getting the right to have a driver's license, but don't have the right to vote. And so male, female, very different levels of rights under the law. In addition, uh, many will still consider uh, Christians and Jews monkeys and pigs. They refer to us pejoratively. And unless you hold to Sharia law and worship Allah and you live in Islamist culture, you do not have any equality under the law. You just do not. It's not freedom of religion, freedom of expression, freedom of gathering. Those things do not exist where there is a strict Islamic culture. So you're not gonna get equality under karma. You're not gonna get equality under Islam uh, and you will not get equality under atheism. One of the dominant worldviews in the 20th century was atheism. And atheism basically teaches that there is no God, you come from no one, you're here for no reason, and when you die, you go nowhere. That is not the basis for hope. That is the basis for hopelessness, which is why atheism often ends in suicide. If I come from nowhere, I'm here for no reason, I'm going nowhere, then as soon as it hurts too bad, I quit. And in the 20th century alone, this great horrific demonic experiment of atheism, in the 20th century, 170 million people on planet earth were killed by other human beings. 130 of those were killed by atheists. So what you often hear is religion is violent and it causes all the violence in the world. Actually, the number one killer of human beings on the earth by worldview and ideology in the entire 20th century was atheism. It was atheism. I'll give you some of the Summary counts. Uh, Stalin killed 40 million. Hitler killed at least 6 million Jews, plus 9 to 10 million additional people, including Christians, uh, for a total of 15 to 16 million. Mao killed 70 million Chinese, and, and a billion people were aborted. So Frederick Nietzsche, he was an atheistic philosopher, one of the philosophical fathers of atheism. And uh, he says this, he came up with the concepts of God is dead and the Superman. And in his book, The Will to Power, he credits Christianity for equality. The, the atheist, godfather of philosophy says, well, equality, that's a Christian idea. He says it this way, another Christian concept has passed even more deeply into the tissue of modernity, the concept of equality of souls before God. And what he's saying is that the God of the Bible says that he's made us in his image and likeness with a soul. And when he looks at people, he sees the essence of who they are and that is their soul. And it doesn't matter what color, what race, what gender, which nationality. When God looks, everybody who's got a soul is equal to him because they're made in his image and likeness. And what he's saying is that apart from Christianity, we really don't have any concept of equality. And so there was another philosopher, his name was uh, Richard Rorty. He was an atheistic philosopher and he, um, he was one of the fathers of what's called postmodern philosophy. And what he says is this, the idea of universal human rights was a completely novel concept in history. See right now, everybody's like, we're equal and we should have justice. That's a brand new idea that you borrowed. That actually didn't come into existence 
until it was recorded in the scriptures. Because these were not concepts that human beings wanted because if you had power and other people didn't have equality and they didn't have rights under the law, why in the world would you want to have them gather equality and, and, and gain equality under the law? If, it's winning, if you're the winner and they're the loser, you're fine with that game. But God is the one who cares about human life because he created it. Sorority says, and I quote, the, universe, the idea of universal human rights was a completely novel concept in history resting on the biblical teaching that all human beings are created in the image of God. And so they asked um, Richard Rorty, so what is your basis for equality and justice and human rights? And he said, quote, I'm a freeloading atheist. Meaning my whole worldview and ideology leaves no place for human dignity, but I borrow that from Christianity because I think it's still important. The atheist says, I have no, I just stole it. I, 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 I looted God's word and I took the equality of human beings because something in my conscience says we still need that. That's because he's made in God's image and he has a conscience whether he acknowledges God or not. Well, how about evolution? Let me get into this because right now, a lot of people who are very upset, uh, number one, they don't believe that there's any universal law, but now they're appealing to it. And number two, they would say they believe in evolution, but if they do, they have no reason to really protest. And I know that's controversial, but it's true. Because the concept of evolution does not lead to equality. It cannot. It's inherently prejudiced and bigoted. And what it means, and it's obviously, you know, one of the forefathers is Charles Darwin. But what it means is that we're on an evolutionary curve. And what that means is that practically some people are more evolved and some are less evolved. Um, if you've seen the evolutionary chart in school, this is exactly what it's telling you. These people are more developed than these people. And what that would mean is that they're not all equally human. Uh, this is why, sadly, tragically, in the history of our nation, when it came to the census for a number of years, those who were non-white, particularly black, were considered three-fifths three human. So in the census, you're white, you, you're one point, you're black, you're 60% human, 40% animal. Say, so how do you get that? Not from the word of God, where God says, I made people and I made animals. You get that from evolution that says animals got lucky and eventually some of them became people. And some people are still on that continuum. Well, I've experienced this in a debate. I was on uh, ABC Nightline some years ago debating a man named Deepak Chopra who believes in evolution and higher consciousness and planes of development. He's also holding to more of a reincarnation concept. And uh, I gave the biblical Christian perspective and quoted some scripture and he looked at me and he said I was primitive. And he said that Christians who think like me are primitive. What he's saying is I've evolved to a higher consciousness. You're two or three guys back with a flat forehead and dragging knuckles on the evolutionary chart. We're not equal, we're not equal. As well, um, if evolution is true, might makes what? Right. Well, there's no equality or justice there. In the same way, if a leopard chases a gazelle, catches them and eats them, they don't get to find an attorney and file a suit for injustice. Because in the animal kingdom, might makes right. If all we are is animals, then might makes right. And it's also survival of the fittest. 
Well, if that is the animal kingdom and we are nothing but animals, then there is no equality and there is no justice and there is no law to appeal to. We're just like animals. And some don't know this, um, for those of you guys that are present, what was the name of Charles Darwin's famous treatise in Tome? You've probably heard it like this, they, on the origin of species. Here's the full title. They didn't tell you this in public school because it, it doesn't fit the agenda. He said, here's the title of Darwin's work. On the origin of species by means of natural selection or the preservation of favored races in the struggle for life. Charles Darwin's title, The Origin of the Species or Favored Races in the Preservation of Life. It was a racist manifesto that those who realize that it is unconscionable because we still bear a conscience given us by God, what they did for all of us in school, they just shortened it to on the origin of the species. Because if they put the full title, we would not read the book. Charles Darwin says, and I quote, and this is the fourth option in the evolutionary ideology, at some future period, not very distant as measured by centuries, the civilized races of man, what does that infer? Some races are uncivilized. They're less evolved. I'll read it again. At some future point, Charles Darwin said, not very distant as measured by centuries, the civilized races of man will almost certainly exterminate and replace the savage races throughout the world. Civilized races will exterminate what we do to bugs and rodents, savage races. The evolutionary ideology leads to bigotry. Okay? So right now, everybody's upset because they're made in the image of the likes of God and whether they acknowledge him or not, they have a conscience. They know that they know that they know that something is wrong. So they're appealing to a moral law. But my question would be, why? If you believe in evolution and no universal moral law, why are you upset and what are you appealing to? As Christians, we are consistent to say, this is wrong, they are equal, and the law rules over us all. We're completely consistent. Everyone else is inconsistent. It doesn't matter how angry you are, how loud you are, or how frustrated you are. If you don't start with good premises to work toward a solution, all of your anger is an energy, but it's not positive toward any sort of positive result. It's not enough just to be upset, and it's not just enough to oppose, but there needs to be a grander, better vision for human flourishing that is holistic and together holds together to build a framework that is, that is simply more life-giving and, and reflective of the heart of God. Well, what happened with evolutionary thinking, it started to be applied to the social sciences. And this included Thomas Malthus. He lived late 1700s into the early 1800s. And tell me if you've heard this from the left. Uh, there is uh, too much population on earth. There is a scarcity of resources. The planet is in peril. Therefore, we need to manage the population. You heard that? And so what he decided was to put in force evolutionary theory with social conditioning and also social controls, racial controls. So what happens then we start getting sterilization of certain races and those that are deemed less fit. 
In addition, now we start to get things like abortion and the taking of human life from people that we believe are not most suited to populate the planet and its limited resources. This leads to an experiment called Germany. Okay, ideas have consequences. Germany was an attempt to take Darwinian evolutionary theory, the teaching of Thomas Malthus sociologically, and then apply it practically and politically. And so what do you get? You get the sterilization of whole groups of people. You get the mass slaughter of entire people groups, starting with the Jews, but including Christians and many, many others. Um, I've been to Germany. My wife, Grace, and I actually went to one of the concentration camps where they held the political prisoners. And it was, it was just horrifying to be there. Outside of the walls of the compound um, is where the soldiers lived with their families. They had a pond, ducks, park, amusement parks, barracks, food, festivals, fairs, idyllic. You pass through the gates, it's a concentration camp. The women, children that are living in the concentration camp are literally on the other side of the wall. Um, these people are being used for medical experiments. Many of the advances that we've seen in medicine is because Nazi Germany was experimenting on live human beings, not giving them any legal right. And this is before there's any concept of human rights. Human rights was actually something that came into an existence after the horror of the Holocaust and the entire global community said, we just can't allow nations to make their own morality. They need to be held accountable to a universal law. And so they borrowed a Christian concept. And if memory serves me correct, it was a Jewish man that led that fight because he was rooted in scriptures and knew some of the laws of the Old Testament. Nonetheless, what would happen is they would take human beings, they would run medical experiments on them, they would abort their babies, they would sterilize them, and then when they were no longer able to do the kind of work or be available for the kind of research, they would literally burn their bodies and the ashes would go in the air and they would blow over the wall where the children were playing at the park and on the carousel. And that's the practical result of thinking we're more fit and they're less fit. That, that, that we are the might and might makes right. And it is the survival of the fittest and we are more fit. This is the logical outgrowth because ideas have consequences. Now, what happens is there is the horror of Nazi Germany. And at the conclusion of that, of course, there's global moral outcry because we're made in the image and likeness of God with a conscience. And we know that we know that we know that that's evil and wrong. And that human life is sacred. So what happens then is that this effort toward population control that goes from Charles Darwin to Thomas Malthus through Nazi Germany goes to a woman named Margaret Sanger who starts an organization called Planned Parenthood. She took the thinking of the concentration camp and put it in a clinic and all a clinic is, it's a little concentration camp. And rather than taking everyone to the big concentration camp, she thought, we should instead put little clinics in their neighborhoods so we could be more efficient and effective in the taking of the lives of those who are less fit. See, the reason I say this is right now there are people who are protesting for life and when this protest is over, they'll be protesting for abortion against life and that's inconsistent. What happens is um, Planned Parenthood is founded 
1933, uh, they published uh, the Planned Parenthood magazine. It was called Birth Control Review. They republished an article called Eugenic Sterilization, an Urgent Need. It was penned by Ernst Rudin, who was Hitler's director of genetic sterilization and founder of the Nazi Society for Racial Hygiene. The ideological roots, this is where Darwin goes to Malthus, goes to Germany, goes to Planned Parenthood, goes to the inner city in America. It's the same spirit that's at work, and it's demonic and it's evil. In addition, that same year, Planned Parenthood magazine published an article by E.A. Whitney titled Selective Sterilization. In it, they praised and defended Nazi racial programs. The assumption was the planet's overpopulated, there's a scarcity of resources, not all of us are equally fit. Some of us are part animal and part human. We should eliminate those people because they're not assets for the human flourishing so that the rest of us can benefit and prosper. Question, what kind of neighborhood do you think that the clinics were originally put in? Poor neighborhoods. Why? Those are where the less fit are. Now, I don't believe that, but that was the, that was the argument that was made. Today, there are upwards of, the numbers bounce, um, they're down a bit, but somewhere in the neighborhood of, give or take, right under a million abortions a year in the United States of America, 29% of the American population is black and Hispanic, but they account for 55% of all abortions. The deadliest place for someone who is brown or black is still in their neighborhood at the clinic. That's where the majority of lives are being taken. All of this to say, you and I need to think biblically, and if we're feeling emotionally, that is fine, but the emotions are like a sail and the mind is like a rudder. If all you are is emotional, but you don't know where you're going, you're gonna find yourself in some sort of real dire situation. So the passion of the emotion is fine, fill the sail. What I am saying is that God's people can't lose sight of the rudder. Okay, what's the problem? What's the solution? Where does this go? Here's what Margaret Sanger said, founder of Planned Parenthood, which is shocking, shocking, that it's considered an essential service, that we shut down businesses, for months, but we consider abortion an essential service for human life. This is shocking. Everybody go home, why? So that we can spare a life. What about the clinic? It's gonna be open, why? Well, certain people need to die. This is where for Christians, if we're gonna be pro-life, we gotta be pro-all life, all life. Born, unborn, everybody, okay? Here's what Margaret Sanger said. Birth control appears to the advanced radical because it is calculated to undermine the authority of the Christian churches. I look forward to seeing humanity free someday of the tyranny of Christianity, no less than capitalism. Make no mistake, everything I say is controversial. I believe that this socialistic agenda is in the process of moving from an economic front to a moral social front in an effort to reshape society, and that was her entire intent. 
I want to get rid of Christianity and capitalism and would like to remake America. That was her ultimate agenda. My basic thesis on this issue of equality is this. If you don't start with the Bible, you end up in a dangerous place for other people. If you really want people to be valued, you better start in the right place. And if you start with karma, if you start with Islam, if you start with atheism, or you start with evolution, and those are four of the predominant ideologies and worldviews, you end up in a very dangerous place for human life, dignity, equality, and justice under the law. So as Christians, as Christians, the biblical basis uh, for equality and justice under the law is in God's word. God doesn't get far in the Bible till he tells us, I believe two of the most important things that any human can being can learn. Who is God and who am I? I think those are the first two things we all gotta learn. Who's God, who am I? Genesis one, in the beginning, God. It all starts with God. Here's the big idea. If you don't start with God, you end up in trouble. If you're working for justice, but you don't start with God, you end up in trouble. If you work for equality, but you don't start with God, you end up in trouble. If you end up, seeking to pursue love or unity, but you don't begin with God, you end up in trouble. Genesis 1, in the beginning, God. God is independent. Everyone and everything else is dependent and contingent upon God. Very quickly then, after God tells us who he is, he tells us who we are. Here it is. Um, and this is what um, the atheist Frederick Nietzsche indicated. This is what Richard Rorty stole as a freeloading atheist, Genesis 1. God, what? Not evolved. Created. Evolution is wrong. You, you and I are not lucky animals with thumbs. We're not lucky animals with thumbs. We're image bearers of God. Okay? God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, make some people, fill up the earth, subdue it, have dominion over animals. Here's God, here's animals, here's us. We're not God, we're not animals. We're not evolving in consciousness to become God. And we're not devolving down in our behavior to become animals. A Christian anthropology is the only thing, a biblical anthropology is the only thing that keeps us from being arrogant and thinking we're God or literally um, being hopeless and acting like animals. It tells us that we have his dignity and we have responsibility to rule over lower creation. And so be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens and every living thing that lives on the earth. That's the biblical foundation for human dignity and equality. Question, does the man and the woman, do the man and the woman each equally possess the image and likeness of God? Yeah, so you know what? They're equal. Equality is not something that we achieve, it's something that we receive. It's not something that comes once we have proven ourselves, it comes once God has created us. We work from our equality. That's the biblical pattern and precedent. Now, to be sure, Genesis 3, sin enters the world and all kinds of problems occur. But nonetheless, the basic anthropology or the view of humanity in the Bible is that the human beings are the image bearers of God in a way that other animals are not. 
What this means is we have dignity, everyone, because these two people, ultimately, for every one of us, if we trace our ancestry and our genealogy back far enough, where do we end up? These two people. Whatever nation you're in, whatever color your skin is, whatever language you speak, whatever culture you prefer, the truth is, if you go back far enough, we're all family. We got the same mom and dad if you go back far enough. And if they were made an image and likeness of God, and then it says in Genesis, and I think in Genesis 9, and I think it's around James 5, pulling files from memory, that even after the fall, even after sin enters the world, that we're supposed to still value human life and not murder because people still bear the image and likeness of God. Okay? And so this is the basis for all human equality. And then within that, there is this concept, secondly, so I wanted to hit the issue of equality. Let me hit the issue of justice under law. So it makes sense for the Christian to say, we believe in equality and justice under law because in the Bible, God governs by laws. The first five books of the Old Testament are called the Pentateuch. It means the book in five parts. It has 613 laws. It's a book of laws. Why does God give laws to his people? Did the nations around them have laws? Answer, no, they had kings. Guess what the king gets to do? Whatever he wants. If you're the king, you've got all the power, you've got all the money, you've got all the soldiers, you've got all the weapons. Guess what there's not? A court system. Guess what there's not? Compensation for wrongs to be righted. It literally is evolutionary. Might makes right, survival of the fittest. This, and oftentimes he would be worshiped as a God and uh, then his son would be called the son of God. It's all counterfeit and demonic to the kingdom of God. And so the kingdom would go from the father to the son and they would just brutally rule over the people doing whatever they want. We were just in the book of Daniel. For those of you that were with us, Daniel couldn't say, hey, you know, the human commission on rights says that as Jews, you know, we shouldn't be put in the furnace. So I'd like to hire my UN attorney to appeal to the international court for my rights as a human being. Answer was, you're going in the furnace and there's no one to call. Most nations are built with those in power, dominating, domineering, harming those who are under authority. Apart from Christianity, there's not even a concept of law. Apart from the Bible, I should say, there's not even a concept of law. But the Bible puts laws in place, why? So that there's justice and equality under the law. There's a universal lawgiver who is God and there are universal laws. And just because you're rich and they're poor or just because you're of one nation and they're from another, God's laws are consistent because everyone bears his image and likeness and that's God's equality under the law. So for those who are like, I don't believe in laws, but I want justice under the law. And I, I, I believe we're all highly evolved animals, but I want us to be equal. The question is, okay, I appreciate the passion, but you need to get your mind straightened out if you're gonna have any solution. Here's what the Bible says, Leviticus 19.15, do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great. You know what that is? Equality under the law for the rich and the poor. How about this one, Proverbs 28.21, showing partiality is what? It's never good. Partiality is, I favor these people over these people. And God says, no, no, my law is equal and there's no partiality. There's, 
It's not like these people need to obey the laws and these people don't. That's why the police officer that got arrested is right. And those who were complicit by standing idly by and having sins of omission by doing nothing also should be dealt with by the law as criminal. Colossians 3.11, here there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all in all in all. And what he's talking about here is various groups that they didn't like each other. They had prejudice. And they would not apply the law equally to that other group. So they would say, for my group, we need laws and justice. For you, you don't deserve it. What he's saying is in Christ, that's different. We'll deal with that in a moment. And James 2, 1, Jesus' brother says, my brothers, what's interesting too, I just thought of this. I don't know if you know this. It was illegal in the first century Roman empire to call someone a brother or sister that was not a biological relative. Because if they were legally um, related to you, they had a right to your inheritance. All of a sudden, Christians start calling one another brother. Why is that? Now we're family. And that would have meant in some of the churches, we'll get into this in a moment, there were Jew and Gentile, two different racial cultural groupings. Uh, This would have meant uh, that some people were slave and some were free, but they'd come in the church and guess what they are? They're a new family. They have a new father in God. They have a new big brother in Jesus and they love each other like brothers and sisters. And so they refer to each other as brothers. Before that, your primary allegiance would be to your kind, to your people, to your group. When you meet Jesus, new, new family, new identity, new first commitment. My brothers show no partiality. Well, these guys need to obey the law, but not these guys. No, same laws for everybody. As you hold to the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what happens is uh, Christianity is outlawed until the Roman Emperor Constantine. And it's a few hundred years after Jesus returns to heaven, after his resurrection. Constantine was getting ready to go out to war and he was wanting to rule and reign over the Roman Empire. And history reports and records that he had a vision or a dream and it was the sign of the cross. And he was told in this sign, you will conquer. There's a big historical debate. Did he really convert or was he just using Christianity to win his war? Nonetheless, he put the sign of the cross on his soldiers. They went out to battle and they won. Next thing you know, he's ruling and reigning over the Roman Empire. And what uh, he does then, he takes Christianity from an underground outlawed religion and makes it the official state religion of the entire Roman Empire. And so now Christianity is legal. And what he is finding is that the way that the Roman Empire is dispersed and distributed, there are these geographic areas it's, it's a vast empire of various people groups, lots of ethnic and cultural and linguistical diversity. And so what he decides is, I need godly, trustworthy people in all of these different districts, these geographic areas, to render verdicts on legal cases because it's just anarchy in my country. And so what he decides is that the Christian bishops should be the ones who are appointed over these geographic areas to settle legal disputes. Why does Constantine pick the Christian bishops to untangle the legal conflicts? 
because they alone know law. They alone believe in the equality of humanity despite the diversity of the Roman Empire and because everything in God's word says no partiality. The beginning of what we know as current rights and justice started in the Roman Empire with the Christian bishops being the ones to enact law and order and equality under the law throughout the Roman Empire. Sometime later, the Emperor Justinian, he was a Christian, he established a full legal system that served as the basis for the European Charter for Human Rights and uh, something called the Declaration of Independence. All of that was built on the Roman system of law that came from the bishops bringing equality and law into the order of the Roman Empire. And that has influenced all of Western history. So we'll be like, you know, the problem with this world is Christianity. No, no, actually, Christianity has had its problems and there have been people who have acted inconsistent with the teachings of the Bible, but when consistently practiced, it is the most loving, just system for the flourishing of all human life. And that's what we believe. So let me, I hit equality, I hit justice under the law. Let me hit um, the issue of diversity and, and cultural unity. Revelation 7, 9 through 10. And what he's giving us here, he's giving us a picture of heaven. And what this is, this is the perfect culture and the way it will be when everything is God intends. And Jesus told this to pray and to live, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The problem is you can know what's wrong, but you don't know what's right. You can know what you're against, but you cannot know what you're for. You could say, this is wrong. Okay, well, do you have a better idea? No, I just am very angry at the way that it is. The Bible not only tells us what's wrong, it tells us what it is supposed to look like. And, and so the kingdom of God where Jesus rules, it is to be for us the picture of how things were until sin entered the world and how it will be when Jesus strips all the sin from the world. And so it says this in Revelation 7, 9 through 10, I looked, so John gets a glimpse into the unseen realm, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from where? Every nation. This is why missionaries go to all the nations. This is why Bible translation is sought to be distributed in all the languages. Not just the nations, the big people groups, all the, what? The tribes, these are, these are smaller groups of people. Even within a nation, you've got cultures and subcultures and different groups of people. And all languages standing before the throne and before the lamb and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb, that is the Lord Jesus Christ. The picture of eternity is that there is unity because there is a center. As Christians, we believe that we get closer together when we get closer to Jesus. If Jesus is the center, it doesn't matter what nation, what race, what class, what income level, uh, what cultural preference. If you're getting closer to Jesus and you're getting closer to Jesus and they're getting closer to Jesus and they're getting closer to Jesus, guess what is happening? We're all getting closer together. That the, the center of human history is a throne and it is God the Father and God the Son seated on the throne and the image is all the nations, all the tribes, all the languages, all the different groups of people that otherwise, honestly, don't have a lot in common. They have one thing in common, and that's Jesus, and that's all they need is the basis for their eternal unity. 
What we don't have in heaven is one culture dominating. We have all cultures celebrating. That's what we've got. And so even those who would say, but you know, we want plural, plurality and we want diversity and, and we want global harmony. Do you want Jesus? No, no, no. And what it is, they want heaven, but they don't want Jesus. You don't get heaven without Jesus. You don't get heaven without Jesus. You get Jesus, all the problems get fixed. And so we believe that we're made in the image and likes of God, all equal, that we've all equally fallen into sin, that we all equally need Jesus as our Lord, God, and Savior. We all need to equally repent of sin. We all need to equally trust in Him. We all need to equally be filled with the Holy Spirit. We all need to equally obey God's Word. And that's the basis of our equality. It's from our creation to our fall, to our redemption, to our resurrection. It's together. A couple of things on this, and then I'll jump into Ephesians. Um, Jesus does this. In his life, there was a people group called the Samaritans and another people group called the Jews. The Jews had the north and the south, and in the middle was the Samaritans. Any of you got a neighborhood? You're like, I drive around that one. That was Samaria. Uh, they considered the Samaritans total outcasts, demon-possessed, counterfeit religion. Their whole race was the product of incest. They were considered unclean. Uh, they only obeyed parts of the Bible. They created their own religion. It was a cult is how they would have viewed it. And so what the Jews would do, rather than walking from north to south through Samaria, they would walk around it and take a few additional days. When Jesus came to the earth, he didn't walk around it. Where did he go? He walked straight through it. And what he's saying is, I'm here for you too. I'm here for you too. God's people had prejudices in that day, but God didn't. Okay? And then he gets there and he goes to a well. Uh, this is in John's gospel. And he sits down with a woman. Now, Jews, it says in the text, Jews don't deal with Samaritans and men don't deal with women. These are all divisions. Jesus sits down. And not only that, she's had a lot of husbands and now she's living with some guy who's not her husband. Jesus forgives her sin, changes her life. She's there in the middle of the day all by herself because none of the other women want her around. She's isolated, she's the outcast. And so she's by herself, but Jesus shows up. Nobody wants to be with her. Even her own people don't wanna be with her, but Jesus loves her and he comes to be with her. And then she goes into Samaria and she preaches, she proclaims, I've met Jesus, I've met the Messiah, he forgave my sin. And there's a revival in Samaria. Jesus has to stay there for a while because now he's on an evangelistic preaching tour. And I would argue perhaps the first and greatest evangelist in the New Testament is the rejected, opposed Samaritan woman who meets Jesus. Jesus is willing to build relationships with people who are not accepted by others, but are loved by him. And this is the pattern that Jesus sets for all of us get to know some people, build some relationships with people who are not like you. Well, in addition, uh, the, one of the most outcast groups in the first century were the slaves. And it wasn't quite exactly like slavery in America, which is demonic and called slave trading, and it's listed as a grievous sin. Some people were called bond servants. Literally, you would take a debt and you would make yourself the bond. And if you couldn't pay your debt back, you'd go to work to pay off your debt. So you're a bond servant. Just like you'd put up collateral of a home or property, you'd put up collateral of labor and service. In the Roman Empire in which Jesus came and the New Testament was written, upwards of 50% of all citizens in the Roman Empire were slaves. But they didn't have all of the same legal rights. 
And what is really curious that Jesus comes and he says that he is a what? He's a servant. What he's saying is, I take the lowest position and I associate and affiliate with the low. The people that no one else wanted to identify or affiliate with. When he goes down to wash his disciples' feet, Jesus was doing the job of the lowest slave. And what he was doing, he was dignifying everyone, starting with those that no one else gave dignity to. And then in his wake, Christians, including the apostle Paul, they refer to themselves as slaves or servants or bond servants of Christ. All of that to say, once Jesus comes, some of the other alliances and allegiances, I was in this group. No, nope, now I'm with Jesus. I'm in a new group. Well, we'd look down on these people. No, Jesus actually lifted these people up and he considers them equal of value and dignity and worth and love. This is why Christianity exploded in the Roman empire because a lot of slaves realized there is a God who loves us, forgives us and treats us with equality. So they signed up. This is why Christianity spread very rapidly with women. Okay, Jesus treats us a lot better than our husbands and our government. Moving forward, um, St. Patrick uh, was a slave and then he was a Christian leader who fought against slavery. Rodney Stark, a historian, uh, speaks of slavery in medieval Europe and he says it ended, quote, only because the church extended its sacrament to all slaves and then managed to impose a ban on the enslavement of Christians and Jews. So why did slavery end in medieval Europe? Because the Christians said, you could take communion, you could be baptized, you could be a church leader, right? And there are some slaves in the New Testament who are actually church leaders. And then they put a moratorium that if you are a Christian, you're not allowed to have slaves. Well, eventually then slavery dies because it started with God's people following God's word. Um, few others, uh, you've probably heard of William Wilberforce. Uh, he definitely opposed slavery. I talked to Dr. Wayne Grudem, I interviewed him. He lives here in the Valley, he's a wonderful man. And he told me in an interview that two thirds of the leaders of the American abolitionist movement profess to be Christians. Um, you heard of Rosa Parks? Christian. Heard of Martin Luther King Jr? Pastor. Heard of Jackie Robinson? Christian. I watched the movie Made on His Life and I just wanted to cry. They forgot to tell us that he loved Jesus. But that was actually a very, I would argue perhaps if you ask Jackie, the most important part of the story. Why did he endure a lot of injustice? Because he believed that he was made by God an equal in dignity, value, and worth. And it didn't matter what anyone said, he lived for an audience of one. And we strip that out of the story, we make him into a great moral example. The truth is he was a great worshiper. He wasn't just trying to do what was right. He was trying to do what was right in the sight of God, okay? And so we even revise history to remove the motivation for those that we would hold up as great examples. And today, the most diverse movement of any sort or kind in the history of the world is something called the Christian church. A few billion people on earth today profess to worship Jesus Christ. And this is the longest lasting, most globally expansive, largest diverse movement of any sort of any kind in the history of the world. Nations come and go, political parties come and go, trends come and go. Christianity, everybody, everybody around the world is invited to relationship with Jesus Christ and to his new family called the church. And the most diverse thing in the world is the church of Jesus Christ. So I've hit 
equality. I've hit justice under the law. And then let me give you a third way. Um, it's in Ephesians chapter two. I'll read it all. And what I'm trying to argue is that every culture has racial and cultural prejudice problems because of sin. This was a problem in the New Testament between the Jews and the Gentiles. Right? Even in, I've been around the world and I'll just tell you, even in cultures that to us look like they are the same, there is prejudice. There just is, okay? It's a human problem. And I will say this too. The problem with prejudice is ultimately, it's, it's idolatry of self. It's saying, I'm pretty fantastic. If everyone was conformed to my image and likeness, then the world would be a better place. You should be like me and only like people like me. The only person that has a right to say that is Jesus, and we're all supposed to be conformed to his image and likeness. And if we're looking at people saying, you need to be like me, that's idolatry. If we're saying you need to be like Jesus, that's worship. That's worship. So here was the problem in Ephesians 2. Remember that one time you Gentiles, okay? How many of you are non-Jews? We're the Gentiles, okay? A great punk band name. We'll call ourselves the Dirty Gentiles. Okay, so we're the Dirty Gentiles. That's all of the non-Jews in the flesh called the what? So this was a pejorative name. When we don't like a group of people, we no longer refer to them in a dignified way. We give them some sort of slur. That's what that was. Oh, you're the uncircumcised. My question would be, how do you know? I mean, this is just a weird argument, I think. Uh, <laughs> um, and what we look at, we look at this and we say, well, it's really silly that they thought that they were better than these guys for that reason. But here's what happens. Your preferences become your prejudices. Your preferences become your prejudices. So they preferred this and then it became a prejudice. We're the good people because we're like this and you're the bad people because you're not like us. He goes on, the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. Now there's two groups, pickets, protests, hashtags, nothing new. Circumcision, no uncircumcision. Now they're both trending on Twitter. Here it comes, the feces and fan are about to interface. It's the big collision. Here's the two groups, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world, talking to Gentiles like me and Irishmen. But now in Christ, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Jesus died for our sins. He himself is our peace who has made us both what? True or false, these two groups don't wanna be one. Jesus says, tough, if you're with me, you're together. The one thing that pulls together is Jesus. These are people who don't wanna to be together. Here's the Christian church. In walks the Jewish circumcision party. They walk in and you know, on the other side, let's say the other door walks in the Gentile uncircumcised party. Imagine this. I mean, literally this is, this is intense. This is like the 1968 race riots. This is like, you know, Malcolm X and the Klan show up at the same place. They're like, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? Jesus said, we're family and we need to fix this. Well, I don't want to, I don't want to either. Jesus is like, well, you need to, you're gonna be together forever, so start working on it. Okay, that's what he's saying. That's the emotional equivalent of Jew and Gentile. I'll explain that to you in a moment. 
Uh, for he is our peace who has made both one, has broken down in his flesh the dividing walls. I want to hit that issue of walls of hostility. There was hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself what? One new man. Previous to this, you had two choices. Are you Jew or Gentile? Jesus says, new team, team Jesus. Well, I'm Jewish. You're a Jew on team Jesus. I'm a Gentile. You're a Gentile on team Jesus. It's a third way. The culture only always gives two ways, pick your side and shoot the other side. Jesus gives a third way. That's his way. This is where your identity is no longer, if you are a Christian, primarily determined by your ethnicity, your gender, your cultural preference. It's primarily you in relationship to God. It's not primarily you in relationship to your ancestors or your nationality or your income level or your skin color or your gender. It's pr- those things might explain you, but it's your relationship with Jesus that defines you. It goes on. One new man in place of the two, so making peace that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, uh, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Jesus died so that we can have peace with each other and him. That this peace is a peace that is with God and with each other because Jesus. And he came and preached peace to those who were far off, Gentiles, and those who were near, the Jews, for through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Well, here's the question. If you and I have the same dad, what are we now? We're brothers and family. We're brothers and family. And it's not the Jews need to beat the Gentiles or the Gentiles need to beat the Jews. It's the Jews and the Gentiles need to be the third man, the new way, the third option, the people of God. We're brothers. We're family now. We have the same dad. And what he's talking about here is walls of division. And what, what, is, what is true of walls is that they're, they're physical, but they represent something spiritual. And whenever you travel and you see that there is division, there's always walls dividing. So, for example, uh, Grace and I were in Germany um, this last year. There was East Germany and West Germany, walls of division. We went to Checkpoint Charlie, which was the pass-through point. When I went to Israel... There is Israel, and then there's Bethlehem, which is under different government. You need to get off the bus, get a new tour guide, get a new security detail, pass through a checkpoint. Literally, there's, there's a wall that divides. I saw this when I went to India. Those who were in the untouchable and lower classes were outside of the city on the other side of the wall. And then the, the, the more affluent you were and the higher caste system you were, you, you lived in a different neighborhood with different walls. I saw this when I went to South Africa, particularly around Johannesburg. Um, Lots of walls and gates, and then you go into the township. And in the township are the people who, they they live in these really small homes that we would consider it more like a shed. And they're not given dignity, value, and worth. And they're walled in as massive cities of people loved by God. But they don't have the same access to all the same affluence and opportunity of those who live on the other side of the wall. What happens as well, I saw this in Ireland. You've got Northern Ireland, which is British. You've got Southern Ireland, which is free. And in the middle, you had a lot of conflicts. And there are walls of division and checkpoints for security. Well, in their day, the wall was at the temple. There was a wall, and on this side are all the Gentile believers, 
And if you're Jewish, you get to pass through and get closer to God's presence. So literally it's like first class seat for all the Jews and coach for all the Gentiles. And then what he says is once Jesus died, that wall of hostility and division was taken down. Eventually the temple is destroyed in 70 AD. The whole thing is gone. And now the Holy Spirit has been released and every child becomes the temple of God. And there are not walls of division. There is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to make you a sacred place. What he's talking about here is uh, the Gentiles are called the uncircumcised, the separated, the alienated, the without hope, and without God. The Jews are called the circumcised, the people of God. And here's the deal, they hate each other. Um, some Jewish rabbis taught, if a Gentile mother is giving birth to a child, and let's say she's in breach or you know, struggling, needs medical attention, that it would be a sin to assist her with the birth because you would be bringing another Gentile into the world. This would be the equivalent today my wife is having a baby, it's breach. If we don't fix this, the baby and the mother are gonna die. Roll into the hospital, they're like, yeah, we can't help because we don't want your kind on the earth. Can you imagine the hostility that comes if you watch your kid and wife die because they're not willing to help because they don't want lives like yours on the planet. Some rabbis taught that the only reason God made Gentiles is he needed fuel for hell. So God made you to be kindling. You know. Hell has fire, it's gonna need some logs, that's why you were made. So the hostility was very great. If a Jew married a Gentile, the family would throw a funeral. You were dead. There are still some cultures that do this. In some cultures, they do an honor killing. If you marry someone outside of their religion, they kill you to maintain the honor of the family. But they would hold a funeral because now you have compromised the family legacy and lineage uh, that you have intermarried with someone who is unfit to be in relationship with you. The prejudice ran incredibly deep. And the big fight was, are you a Jew? Are you a Gentile? Paul says, actually, Jesus started a brand new team. Question, I never even thought of this till the moment. Which team, the author of Ephesians is who? It's Paul, which team was he on? Jew, how did he treat Gentiles? Not good murdered them. So the guy writing this is saying, there were two teams and I was on one attacking the other. And then I met Jesus and now I joined a new team, Team Jesus. But if you join Team Jesus, what happens to you with these two teams? They both shoot you. You should join our team. No, 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 you should join our team. No, 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 you should join our team. No, 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 you should join our team. No, I'm with Team Jesus, then we're both gonna shoot you. Does that still happen? It does. And a lot of Christians feel pressure. Do I join this team or that team? Stick with team Jesus. And what he calls this third way, it's a, it's a third race. It's a new humanity. The two become one, like a husband and wife who get married. You and I need to constantly just ask ourselves, is there anybody that I wish would go to hell? Is there anybody that I don't feel deserves love, justice, forgiveness of sins, and a new life in Christ? Is there anyone that I feel is lesser than me or lower than me? If so, there's a problem in the heart and we need the heart of God. Let me close with six things. I know this is a late, long lecture. Just let me give you six thoughts from 25 years in the pulpit. 
Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world. When you see people literally attacking each other, you know that it's spiritual warfare and the enemy's behind it because here's how I know something is demonic. Everybody loses. Here's how I know something is godly. Everybody wins. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. What he's talking about here, again, your your emotion, your passion, it's gonna be like a sail, very passionate. Your mind, that's your rudder. Okay, I'm gonna take this energy and do something positive. Not just make a point, but make a difference. That by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, not just what the pressure of others forces you to do. What is good and acceptable and perfect. A couple of things in closing. Uh, Number one, the world is the devil's playground, so stay off the merry-go-round. Right? If what is happening is just ungodly and unwise, don't jump on that merry-go-round. And right now, there are a lot of people who feel like they have very profound things to say on the internet. And most of them are not, in fact, contributing anything really helpful. I had a guy tell me this week, he's like, you're for me or against me. Jesus said that, no one else gets to. Right? I mean, like, like you know, he also said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. So, you know, we can't borrow that either. Like there's, there's certain things that Jesus says that only Jesus gets to say. He was with, you know, I'm without sin. Yeah, he said that. I'm not saying it. There's a lot of things that Jesus said that I believe, but I'm not supposed to say them because I'm not Jesus. How about this one? Don't confuse good works, good advice, and good news. For all of you guys who are young, write this down. Good works is important. It is justice, love, mercy, generosity, meeting physical needs because God cares about the whole person. We would call this all by itself, separated from the rest, something called the social gospel, which is the heart of social justice. Good advice, we would call the therapeutic gospel, principles to live by, not a person to live for, not a person to live with. Do this, don't do that. It's moral advice. That's not bad, but let me say this, good works and good advice never saved anyone. You can go to hell feeding people, and living by moral principles. The only thing that saves people is the good news of the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay? Now, the Bible includes all of these. Jesus says that, or James, Jesus' brother, says that pure religion is to care for widows, orphans, those in need. That's good works. Um, Jesus talks about if your brother's hungry, give him something to eat. That's good works. Good advice is like in Proverbs. Invest your money, keep your pants on, be quiet. Okay? Just, if you do those three things, just so you know, your life's gonna go better. If you do them all at once, we'll call it a miracle. So that's good advice. <laughs> but only good news saves people. And what can happen is when people get very emotional, they throw all their energy into good works or good advice with those who are not Christians and they lose sight of the good news. Okay? And what they will say is, Well, the good works and the good advice is to reduce human suffering and pain. And I would say, that's great. Let's not forget about the worst human suffering and the eternal pain. If we really wanna help people from suffering, which we do, we need to tell them about Jesus because if they don't know him, they're gonna suffer forever. So if we really care about human suffering, let's not lose sight of the good news. 
this is fine and this is fine, but without this, it's not true Christianity. Number three, if we truly value human life, we have to value it from the womb through the grave. Before you're born, that matters. And after you die, I'm worried about that. So I want to protect life in the womb and I want to introduce people to Jesus so that from conception to eternity, in the sight of God, people are honored and given best case scenario. Number four, don't let the grandkids of the Pharisees on social media bully you. As I say this, now they will post on Facebook, okay? What happened in Jesus' day, the Pharisees would follow him around. As soon as he got a crowd, they would hijack the conversation and they would yell at him and change the subject and slander him and make accusations and try and bait him into an argument. And Jesus oftentimes just avoided those. Because ultimately, you can either respond to God or those that are responding to you. And if you respond to those who are responding to you, eventually they get you off a message. And today in the age of social media, I think the grandkids of the Pharisees have just found the internet. They're gonna nitpick, harass, bait, whatever. I mean, it's, it's a, you and I have gotta be careful to say we're gonna love and bless, but at the same time, we're not gonna get bullied into some argument that is not productive and then defending ourselves. And you know that it's reached an impasse when it just gets incredibly personal. It's no longer even about an issue. It's just, well, you're an idiot. No, you're a bigger idiot. And you're like, well, you're both right, you know? So can we do something else now? That would be amazing. Um, and then number five, I would give this to all my white brothers. Uh, you don't have to know what it's like to be another person, to love them and learn from them. Uh, a, a Christian brother of mine, he's, he was telling me some years ago, you know, kind of about his experience. And I said, I understand. He's like, no, you don't. I was like, yeah, you're right, I don't. I just felt like I need to say something. And he said, don't say you understand. He said, because you don't. I said, no, I don't understand. He said, just be my friend and try and learn. Okay, I can do that. Right? Like, I, I've been to Haiti when the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere had a massive crisis and we delivered relief supplies and I could see the suffering of people, but I didn't know what it was like to be them because I flew on on a plane. I flew in on a plane. I was flying out on a plane. I don't know what it's like to be there for generations. I've been to a township in South Africa. I can see the suffering of human beings, but I, I, I don't fully understand that living there for generations. So it's fine to say, I don't understand, but I love you and I wanna learn. Because that's actually an honest answer. And that's how we develop empathy. The person who says, I understand, what they're immediately saying is, I'm not listening and I'm not learning, which is not helping. And then lastly, don't put your cause at the center and Christ at the margin. I've been doing this long enough. I'll tell you that causes come and go. And what happens is Christ is at the center. And if Christ is at the center, you can have all kinds of causes. You say, you know what? We need to work for the unborn. Absolutely. You know what? God adopted us. We need to adopt kids. Okay, totally. Um, people need justice under the law. Okay, I, I, all that, great. I agree with all that. As soon as you start to bring in non-Christians to the conversation, the pressure will be, okay, we agree on this issue, but we don't agree on this person. So can we just remove Jesus and then just put the issue at the center? And you can keep your faith to yourself, but Jesus isn't really the center. This is where people will grab a cause and they'll ride the cause and they'll forget about Christ. 
if Jesus is at the center, you're going to have a lot of causes. If you have a cause at the center, eventually there's no room for Jesus. And, and, and that's where all the trouble begins because what that means is then we're no different than the non-Christians. We're all dealing with the same problems. We're trying to bring some sense of solution. But if we believe that Jesus Christ is the only help, hope, and healing for the planet, if we lose him to address the cause, we understand the cause, but we don't have a solution. And I've seen this so many times. So keep Christ at the center and your cause at the margin. It's always all about Jesus. And what can happen is, I'll close with this. Um, there's always people who are trying to figure out how to be a varsity Christian. And this is where we get legalism and self-righteousness and Phariseeism. And the first century was, are you circumcised? And we'd look at that and say, that's a crazy one. Like who would pick that? But that was what they picked. And what can happen is a good thing takes Christ's place, and that's a bad thing. Uh, in some circles, it is, if you really love Jesus, you need to go varsity and adopt a kid. And I would say adopting a kid is great. Joseph adopted Jesus, God adopted us, I'm for adoption. But I don't think that every Christian who doesn't adopt is junior varsity. And so what can happen is these good causes replace Christ and they become a form of works righteousness and some form of outward badge that indicates to others, I'm more righteous than you. And now we do that with social media hashtags. And so it's very easy to declare your public morality by just posting a hashtag. It's a lot harder to live out Christian morality privately than it is to just post something publicly. You know, so for the guy who's cheating on his girlfriend and robbing his boss, and not paying his child support, but puts up the right hashtag, that doesn't mean that he's righteous. That just means that he wants you to consider him righteous, but God does not. And so what you and I need to worry a lot about is not just our public decorations, but also our private disciplines. How we treat people, how we love people, how we conduct ourselves. And, uh, and at the end of the day, I believe that that is the opportunity that God gives us. Some of you will ask, well, what's the problem to everything? I would say, you know what? Um, ultimately, it's Jesus. And everybody who's frustrated wants heaven, but not everybody who's frustrated wants Jesus. And for us, they go together. So if you don't like this planet and you want it to be fixed, we need Jesus to rule and reign over everyone and everything, bring equality and justice and unity and a new identity and a new humanity as those who are forgiven of sin, filled with the Spirit and aligned with Him. Father, thank you for giving me an opportunity to teach on a complicated subject. Uh, Lord, I confess, I, I, I'm no expert. I, I, don't, I don't know everything. I certainly don't know a lot. Lord, I don't pretend to understand injustice that is experienced by some. I don't pretend to fully have walked in the shoes of others to understand. Uh, but Lord God, I do know this, that, uh, that you made us and that you love us and that you sent your son for us. And this world is not our home. And the way we treat each other is not the way we're going to treat each other in the kingdom of God. And so Lord, in our lives, would you please give us the grace to start to live like citizens of the kingdom and to treat each other as brothers and sisters, family, and Lord God, would you help us to learn from those who are different than us? 
to have the humility to listen, to learn, to love, to say, I, I don't understand, but I would like to. I don't have that experience, but if you would share it with me, it would help me to learn how to love you and to learn from you. And Lord God, um, we know that the anger of man does not bring about the righteousness of God. And so, Lord God, I just want to thank you for our brother who was murdered, that he is our brother. And I thank you, Lord Jesus, that the gospel that he preached, he now sees by faith is true, that Jesus is real, that salvation is real, that heaven is real, that eternal life is real, that peace that surpasses understanding is real. And Lord God, we look forward to seeing him and meeting him. We look forward to that reunion and getting to know that brother. And Lord God, I pray against the enemy of servants, their works and effects. And God, I just pray as we're having conversations that we'd watch our tongue, as we're posting online that we'd watch our words, and that as we're dealing with human beings, we would love them with the love that Jesus has had for us. And Jesus, we confess, we were all outsiders. We were all sinners. We were all, we were all completely separated. And you did the unthinkable. You, you you crossed every barrier so that you could come to us and be with us and love us. And so, Jesus, give us a heart to do that in our own lives in very practical ways. To jump over whatever barriers happen to be there so that we can meet people and love them and share the love of Jesus Christ with them. And God, I pray for the churches, that they would be places that are outposts of the kingdom, and that the divisions that we see in this world would be discussions and even debates within the family of God, but not divisions within the family of God. With Jesus' prayer for unity, and by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Would that be a grand opportunity for us in a very difficult moment, Lord, to have disagreements and debates without divisions and be held together by unity because of the love of Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you.